Welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. We hope you're cozy. We hope you're having a nice little time. We're all just going to sit back, relax, and shoot the shit. A lot on the menu tonight. A lot of shit we got to get through. A lot of shit we all been through, but... We're going to sort it all out. We're going to sort it out here. Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, joining us for yet another episode of the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. My name is Bide. I will be your guide. Uh, and we got an interesting topic here tonight. Uh, not one that I've seen get a lot of a lot of play or a lot of discussion, but I think it does fit into sort of the a lot of the narratives that are kind of happening culturally right now. Um, and I don't know where all of you are from. I don't know what kind of past you have or how politically active you are or not. But there's kind of a, a reputation amongst leftist circles in particular for something that you might have heard of called, uh, I don't know, cancel culture. Maybe you've heard the phrase. Maybe you've been spared. Maybe you've actually been spared from hearing that dumb shit-ass phrase again. Uh, and not dumb shit-ass because it don't mean nothing, but because, you know, there's, there's, there's layers and there's nuance, and I know that the conversations around cancel culture are usually not about that. But one thing about leftist organizations that you might not know, and organizations in general, but I'd say leftist organizations in particular, is that there can be a lot... A lot of infighting. I mean, it makes sense. You know, a lot of the left is trying to build a mass movement. You need a lot of different people to do that. And a lot of different people come from a lot of different backgrounds. They have their own traumas, their own experiences, their own vibes, their own cultures, their own religions. And somehow, you got to take all these motherfuckers... (laughs) And, and, you know, basically take all the, the, the people on the island of misfit toys and make them, I don't know, build a sleigh so that Santa can get around or whatever those island misfit toys things did. Whatever. You have to build some kind of consensus. And consensus building is very hard because people are, you know, different and difficult. We don't always vibe. We don't always understand each other. We don't always see each other as as humans. And the more people you get into a mass organization, you do kind of lose a lot of that individuality. But when we're talking about cancel culture a little bit, and when we're talking about the need for a mass movement, and when we're talking about infighting in the left, I think there's a story that came out recently in The Intercept uh, by Ryan Grimm, which... I've just found really fascinating. Um, It was originally published on May 8th, 2022. And the story is particularly about... uh, Well, it's about two people. One, a candidate who is uh, a woman named Brandy Brooks, 
who was running for an at-large seat on the Montgomery County uh, City Council or in the Montgomery County Council in Maryland. Uh, and then someone who is a longtime close friend of hers who was a member of her campaign staff uh, in various roles uh, and who was also the source of what became a uh, workplace harassment complaint. And the, in, in the Ryan Grimm piece, this person's only called Sam. Um, kind of a little backstory to what went down here. Uh, Sam and Brandy have both been fixtures of the, the Montgomery County activist scene. They both worked in various capacities for years. Uh, I believe they first met in 2017, and uh, Sam ended up volunteering for Brandy's campaign in 2018. And they worked professionally, but also shared a deep sort of personal relationship. Uh, they would share memes, uh, which nothing makes you closer to somebody else than sharing a meme, as we all know. Um, but they would do things, uh, you know, a lot of other things. They spend a lot of time together. Uh, they talk about their relationships. They talk about their hopes, their dreams, uh, all of that. Uh, everyone who was interviewed for this article really said that Sam and Brandy had been really, really close friends and would even be playfully close and physically close. But it's it's clear that they had a deeper relationship than just politics. So cut to around 2021. I think it's December of 2021 is when a lot of this goes down. Or actually, it's, it's, it's past that. Um, Brandy Brooks is currently running, like I said, for the at-large seat on the Montgomery County Council in Maryland. And Sam was a part of Brandy's campaign team. And there were apparently discussions between Sam and Brandy to elevate Sam to the role of campaign manager, I believe, as well. But then uh, they had an incident, which of course, <laughs> happened in a, in a Chipotle, uh, which is kind of hilarious to think about, but, you know, everyone eats Chipotle. But they're in a Chipotle, and Brandy... And Sam, they're talking, they're goofing around and joking. And Brandy recounts it like this, and Sam doesn't disagree, but says that we were talking about being glad that we're friends with each other and that we can talk and have these deeper conversations. And one of the things that I said is, it's often harder for me to be in emotionally vulnerable relationships because I feel a lot of vulnerability and a lot of anxiety about that. And then I also said, I think that's increased, unfortunately, in cases where I experience romantic and sexual attraction. So that's what Brandy said to Sam at this Chipotle. Now, as Ryan Grimm writes out, it's, it's context. In context, it was clear that Brandy was talking about Sam, who Brandy had a romantic and sexual attraction to. Again, they've worked on a lot of campaigns together. They shared a very dynamic personal and 
professional relationship. And Brandy does regret saying this in hindsight, uh, you know, giving her voice to her feelings and her kind of approach to the, their relationship. And usually, you know, maybe something like this in other contexts would be sort of either just gotten past or they would just sort of stop. You know, you could maybe move past it. And initially it was like that, but the dynamic between Sam and Brandy began to change. At some point, Brandy, clearly regretting what she said, tried to set some boundaries and texted Sam and said, hey, I, I think we should try to keep this more professional. I'm having a hard time with our boundaries not being there. And to Sam, this kind of seemed like retaliation. Uh, but Sam pushed back and said, well, tried to set even more professional boundaries. Uh, uh, these things, you know, as they often do, once people start feeling some type of way, they get complicated. Eventually, Brandy, after following Sam's guidelines of not engaging in more personal conversations, of not sharing memes and stuff, apparently Sam was still sharing some memes to Brandy, and Brandy, a few days later, responded to Sam and said, hey, in a text, like, hey, by the way, I just want to make sure that we're still keeping it professional because that's I want to make sure I'm respecting your, your boundary. Uh and we we don't need to know all every single detail here. The article is really good at going over the, kind of the big moments, but eventually Sam goes to a, a woman named Michelle Whitaker, who was Brandy's sister and campaign manager. And Sam says that she wants to basically make a, a complaint for sexual harassment against Brandy. Uh, it's not necessarily a formal complaint, but she wants it to be known. Uh, she makes a complaint. Uh, they cut off contact for a bit, and eventually they both agree to engage in a restorative justice practice a sort of mediation between the two of them to talk out how they feel, to allow the aggrieved person, here Sam, to voice how they feel and how they want what they feel like justice would be to them. Uh, it's a practice that is meant to take people out of the more criminal penal practice that we have with most of our uh, justice system. Uh, it's focused on sort of restoring the community, restoring the, the some, some kind of resolution that is, allows for accountability, but also healing. Uh, during this restorative justice session and these mediation sessions, I think there are maybe two of them. Uh, Brandy agreed on drafting an accountability statement that she would read to her full staff and kitchen cabinet only after Sam had approved that statement. So 
this is what happened. Brandy wrote an entire accountability statement, most of which you can see uh, in this Intercept article. Wrote it for Sam. Uh, read it to her entire staff. Seemed to have taken full accountability for what she did. Uh, it's actually a really nuanced statement. I've read it. I think, I think there's a lot of layers that go into it because, you know, I think with politics, we can sometimes dehumanize people and their experiences. And, you know, Brandy being this woman who's talking about her racialized trauma and her feelings of not feeling good enough and even things like suicidal ideation and her, it's pretty raw. It's a really raw statement and it feels very human, at least to me when I read it. Um, And at the time, Brandy and Sam both signed off on this statement and Sam agreed to not take this any further. Uh, Basically, as Brandy at least understood it, to drop any sort of pursuit of talking about this statement or or talking about this incident, they were just going to move on. And I do think that Sam eventually removed herself from the campaign, uh, stepped away from it. Uh, and you would think that would be the end of it. You would think that the problem had been solved. There was indication that Sam thought that the statement originally went above and beyond what she was expecting. And this could be a story of a successful restorative justice practice in action on the left, how to deal with an internal conflict. (sighs) Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Now, what ended up happening after this is Brandy's campaign began to receive calls from groups that had endorsed her. Uh, Jews United for Justice, one of the Metro DC DSA uh, steering committee, its leadership body, and other entities. And basically saying that they'd heard rumors and damning stories that she had or was offering jobs to staff in exchange for sexual favors and retaliating when the overtures were rejected. Now, that's a pretty far cry away from what actually happened here. There was no potential or alleged exchange of sexual favors for uh, political positions. There was no retaliation for, um, or at least specific sort of retaliation for a rejection of a sexual advance. It's and again, I would I would really encourage people to read this story, but the rumors start to kind of spin out of control, and Brandy starts trying to reach out to these organizations. She's running a campaign, and starts telling them, "No, that's not what happened," and trying to tell them, you know, her her version of what happened. Um, I believe she was providing the accountability statement to people, even though you know originally this was not supposed to go out of. This was not supposed supposed to become an out of house incident, as Brandy understood it. it was supposed to be handled in house, accountability to the staff and all the people in the campaign. Um, but eventually, Sam 
it's unclear. Sam was told different things. I mean, for the article initially, she wasn't interviewed because she didn't uh, respond to Ryan Grimm. Later, she she said that the statement, um, it was never her intention to say that Brandy shouldn't have to drop out of the race or that she wouldn't uh, tell other people about what happened with Brandy. Or I'm sorry, or that they wouldn't tell other people about what happened with Brandy. Like, Sam never... Uh, it, it gets complicated. But eventually, these people who were, uh, these different organizations start pulling their endorsements from Brandy's campaign. And I think the Metro DSA, the Metro DC DSA steering committee meeting is the the biggest sort of, at least for me, it was the biggest sort of, uh, I guess eye-opening, the thing that, that bothered me the most. So basically, the Metro DSA heard about these rumors. They had endorsed Brandy Brooks. They reached out to Brandy, and I think what's really crazy about it is that between... So they met with Brandy on, I don't know, like a Tuesday. And... Between meeting with Brandy to hear about or to to confront her about these allegations, by that Thursday, two days later, the Metro DSA had uh, put a vote to its members recommending a resolution and an endorsement that insisted that Brandy Brooks end her campaign. So that's a, a two-day time span there. And if you look at some of the statements that the Metro DC DSA put out for Brandy Brooks, it starts to... It doesn't strike me the right way. Look, I understand what they heard or if they heard that she was trying to exchange sex or sexual favors for political positions. But that's not what happened here. And there's a, there was a lack of willingness to investigate what actually happened by these other groups. Um, and it became, it became a mess as to really attacking Brandy Brooks as, as a person, as a caricature of what she was now being purported to be. And as often happens for those of us who are involved in any kind of, you know, political circles, uh, real truth and real reconciliation and real restorative justice was, was lost. Um, people pulled their endorsements for Brandy. People stopped uh, talking to her, it, 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 and now Brandy, at least I believe she's still running for the position, but some of the stuff she was accused of, I mean, the DSA people said that were, they, they, they were disappointed to see Brandy twist her or see her twist the language of abolition and restorative justice to try to deflect from her actions. And that was their public statement. And that to me is, 
what's the ultimate point of all this? Why are we even discussing it? Well, to me, it's when I think about changing power, when I think about what we can actually do to positively affect people, when I think about what we can actually do to, to move from a space of, of people just tweeting and, and people being discontent with our politics into actually affecting power and change and building a mass movement. I, I think we lose something when our entire focus is based on villainizing the individuals who run or villainizing people in these circles for being human, especially when there's been restorative justice attempts done and there's accountability there. You know, I think there's a real issue here with, because if this, I mean, this, if this can't be the sort of restorative justice that's required for us to even engage with a candidate to allow them to continue on in an electoral process, then what the fuck can we do? It, it has a religious element to me, almost. It almost seems like we are, that the purity of the person's soul is what we're trying to judge here. Almost like, like individual politics or someone's individual ideas and ideals and, and the way that they live their life. It's almost like a Protestant or Catholic ethic being applied and a Catholic, like, like, like a framework being applied to, to sort of wider leftist politics. Essentially, this woman was, was canceled after engaging in good faith for a restorative justice process. And there's all kinds of shit that come into it, too. You know, Brandy Brooks is a, a you know, she's a, a black um, queer woman who's been, she's from some shit. And to what extent do we take, does, do these conversations, too, play into the stereotypes against black queer women? And I don't want to use, I'm not using the black queer woman thing as a, as a shield. But when we really think about these narratives spinning out of control... And the fact that that comment at a Chipotle, and there, there are other closeness that they had in their relationship too, don't get me wrong, but how that becomes twisted into trying to exchange sexual favors for political advancement, does that not strike anyone as a little bit like fucked up and like, I don't know, a little bit like treating her like a hoochie mama or something? Like, why are we over-sexualizing what happened here, too? It's a lot, a lot to think about, but we got to call her. You know her. You love her. Everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Shelly. Shelly, welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. Welcome back. Hey, Bide. How are you? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry, I had to turn up my volume there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's raining outside, so I had to get I had to get inside to get some better audio. Um, you sound kind of sad. Oh, do I? Yeah, a little bit. 
Because normally you're like, you're like, you're trying to kind of inject at least like a little bit of funniness into it. And you just sound, I don't know, really disappointed about how this I, all shook out. I think I, you know, I try to, I try to keep things. I mean, there are parts, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. There are parts that like, I, I don't, I, I don't really feel sad. I just, it worries me. It, it worries me when, uh, you know, when a leftist coalition of people who are all about recognizing people's humanity start to turn against each other for anyone showing any aspect of that humanity, you know? Like, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I can always hear someone going, oh, sexual harassing someone's not part of your humanity. And look, I get it. But, like, saying some shit sometimes, like... Being too personal with someone, that's what I see here. I don't see, like, you know, yeah. I don't see this as sexual harassment. It, I mean, it, it ends up having that effect, right? But I don't see this as someone who is, this is not a Harvey Weinstein. This is not someone who's trying to exchange sexual favors for roles or anything like that. Or, no. But it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a human being who had a multilayered relationship with another human being who has a a slip up immediately regrets what she said and then later takes responsibility for it through a mediation and suddenly it's like it didn't matter it's almost like her attempts to recognize the fact that she she was wrong or that she she made someone feel very uncomfortable and that she failed to set the boundaries that should be necessary for that kind of political sort of campaign um, it, it's, it's almost like that didn't matter. Like they still wanted to punish her. And I guess that makes me, it, it just makes me, it, it's hard to have hope for a mass movement when we can't get past the fact that we're going to have human beings in that mass movement who are going to fuck up yeah. and, there has to be a recognition and a, a permission to allow people to fuck up and come back and keep going through it. Because if their heart is in the right place, if they still want, you know, if they're out there still advocating for Medicare for all, then what, what do we get by crucifying them? Well, I would have to probably where I would counter with some of this is that I I think that both the candidate and her staff were completely unserious people. Um, I'm not saying that their hearts aren't, aren't in the right place, but if you're really trying to fight for Medicare for all, if you're really trying to, because you have to understand like the level of poverty, deprivation, suffering that's happening in this country, and we're getting wrapped up over a comment made sort of glibly or offhandedly or someone sort of like admitting some of their own faults and then for that to get twisted into a essentially a crucifixion because that's that's one of the other things that like a lot of these like unserious leftists yeah don't so understand is that the second there is any amount of friction the media will do whatever they can to blow it up because they don't want Medicare for all. They don't want these things. Yeah. 
and and so to me, it just seems like it seems, and, and like I said, I'm not saying that their hearts aren't in the right place. And I mean, I, it sounds like from what she, like the candidate attempted to do, and sort of even what uh, the Sam character individual had kind of said, there there did seem to be like a good faith attempt to kind of keep it together. But it didn't seem very serious. You know, like, what are you fighting for? Well, I, I think, I think, you know, it sounds like the, the implication for a lot of this is that Sam went out and, or others went out and started leaking and twisting the story around. I don't know. I don't, don't want to accuse like Sam of twisting yeah, the story. Yeah. Um, but that the story, you know, eventually it, it, you know, like Sam, I think she's come out and, or I'm sorry, I think they've come out and said something along the lines of, they didn't want. She still wants her to run. Or... No, that she didn't want Brandy Brooks oh, to run anymore. Okay. But that that to me is also strange, right? Like that request would be a strange one if I if I were hearing that because is Brandy Brooks still the person she she was the person most poised to win, and she's going to be serving a community of like a million people. Like, would would you rather not have her in that? position uh, what what is the level of uh, first what does justice look like yeah. right does it look like ceding the seat to somebody who i don't know some republican or something who yeah. doesn't give a That's fuck about any of these people like it's almost like can we not get over the i have a problem with with people putting too much into candidates to begin with and like their own personal sort of morality that's supposed to save us from whatever. Like, no, I have a problem with that. But also like to what extent is your personal grievance, which is not a pattern in practice, which has not been seen as like, you know, um, now you could, Sam may feel like they were under a pattern in practice from just some of the closeness and everything. But like, you know, like, Brandy Brooks is not out there doing this to everybody and no. doing what is also a question, right? Like what did she actually do? Um, I just, I, I don't like the idea of an individual having a grievance like that and then putting the, 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 the material conditions for millions of people or I think it's like a million people into into the crosshairs specifically just for their personal grievance. And that to me is not good politics. Like that's not, that is unserious from a political standpoint. Mm-hmm. It, it, that is it unserious. Sounds, it sounds like they needed to have a little bit of democratic centralism. I mean, like that's kind of, and you know, just, so here's one of the issues that I have with a lot of just our politics in general. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of grandstanding that goes on. You know, so and and one of the reasons why I feel like, you know, especially the left can just show so much failure, even the squad and all these other types of people. You know, it's like Cory Bush, we vote alone. Um, but the whole idea behind democratic centralism is that if you are a party. And, and also, the Democratic and Republican parties, they do kind of do, at least like the core group of them. Both of them do it. There are some people on the fringe, you know. 
but they kind of also have this principle of every every grievance, all of these issues, they happen behind closed doors, and then you go out and you sell $40 billion to Ukraine. God damn it. It right. is a matter of someone rejected it behind closed doors. Right. This is the reason why a lot of times Marxist-Leninists, or if you look at the Chinese, that they have the, they're like, oh, they're all brainwashed. Oh, the Chinese said the same thing over and over again. The whole entire purpose of that is you can have as much debate as you want to behind closed doors. But once the majority of the party makes up a decision, then it's it's supported. Like that that was yeah. the majority, and that's how you go out there. And and so there isn't any of that um, destruction on the fringes that happens so often with the left because we do have so many different tendencies on the left. Yeah. Yeah. And. I mean that that's that's kind of that's kind of the whole entire purpose of of democratic centralism. Yeah, I mean it, it seems like there was an attempt at something like that here. Yeah. And then whoever sort of whoever went out, maybe multiple people, who knows, went out and yeah, uh, stopped that. You know, destroyed that, and. Right. Then you had organizations like the D.C. Metro DSA who basically do no independent investigation on their own, who are so afraid of any kind of controversy that they, you yeah, know, formally withdraw. It's, and it's so dumb, you know? Like, I just, yes, I is. think that's very stupid. Like, do you guys want to take power or not? And well, that's the reason why I see the DSA is a deeply unserious organization. There's parts. I will say that. And I have, you know, I have some experience with the DSA and there are times where they're full of people. Right. And yeah. mm-hmm. there are parts of what they do that are deeply serious that I've yes. seen. But okay. they, uh, you know, as long as they're full of people, there are going to be deeply unserious elements to it. And, you know, here's I'll play devil's advocate for a bit, too. Like, yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything deeply unserious about someone having sort of ideals and values that they really, really don't want to compromise on mm-hmm. and that they, you know, they're out there advocating for. But when, when there's a difference between sort of action and inaction or there's a difference between, okay, as an organization, how do we get closer to that, the things that we need from a mass movement versus the, the needs of an individual. Um, You know, America is in great, like the the amount of individualism that exists in America. I think it, I think it's ultimately a a cancer on society. It's just like, I'm not going to wear a mask because of my freedom. Um, Yeah. You know, I'm going to, you know, I should be able to put silencers on guns because of my freedoms. You know, and I am pro-gun, you know, Um, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying like, there are certain things that it's just like, I understand like, as far as like the second amendment stuff and like the whole freedom and liberty, these are my rights. Like, okay, um, go up against a cruise missile with your AK. It's not going to work. Yeah. Like you can sit there and you can say like, this is how I hold the government in check. No, it's not. Well, one of the problems I think with a lot of individualism in this country in particular, is, uh, you know, that 
there's individualism. I, I'm all for people like finding yourself and having your, it's your life and you need to like, yeah. we're all, we all are unique and we all go on our own journeys and it's, Absolutely. it's, you know, that's all good. But like to the extent that individualism is really, you're now using that inter- individualism as an excuse to uh, do something to the detriment of everyone else and their individualism, you're kind of just being a fucking dick. You know, that's that's the whole idea. Like whenever we talk about freedom, no one ever talks about positive versus negative freedom. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like if you had total, if, if everyone had, if we took individualism and freedom and liberty to the max, then that means that you are free. If, if you're a crazy rapist to basically walk down the street, pull a girl in an alleyway, rape her and be like, that's my freedom. Right. Right. You know, I mean, and that's but there's and, no discussion about her freedom to walk on the street. And that's that needs to be a more explicit discussion for sure. Um, but it's you know, it's it's. You know, I'm not sad from from. It's it's hard to feel super hopeful about leftist organizations though, when you read this article. Um because it's difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult. And I don't want to, you know, Sam in this article too, doesn't even strike me a lot of the times as someone who like, they're not, they're not really going out of their way to sabotage things. It does seem like there are a couple people in this organization who are, or who are involved here, who are now using it as like a, a jumping point to go support a different candidate or, do other kind of just snake ass shit. Um, it's kind of, whatever that guy was. But, and I did like him. He, he was good. Ryan, Ryan covered him. He was the, um, the homosexual. Yeah. Was really impressive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I thought he, I thought he was great. In a lot yeah. Of and, and then the whole entire yeah. campaign was blown up and he was super yeah. young and really had a good head on his shoulders. And you know, we just threw that out. Jamal Bowman, I think retracted his endorsement or something like that. <sighs> I don't remember that. I fucking, yeah, there's, there, I, I know who you're talking about because yeah. they, they talked about it. I think they had a breaking point segment about this story and mm-hmm. we're talking about that specifically too. And, um, but they, they destroyed him. Yeah. They absolutely destroyed him. Because, and here's the thing, power is always going to be invested in doing that too, because mm-hmm. as long as these politics and as long as our politics are based so much around the, the individual candidate, as opposed to, listen, no individual candidate should be, well, as opposed to, like, the, the ideal that they represent, the policies that they represent, then we're going to keep falling into that. And no individual candidate should be seen as a savior. It, and it's difficult because I know a lot of people see Bernie that way or saw Bernie that way, and a lot of people began their sort of radicalization process through Bernie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not Bernie. It's the ideas that he had the courage to... Not me fucking up. to just keep yeah to to not have any sort of um uh what, what do you call it to not uh, he has principles you know he has principles in the the ideas that he's not going to um compromise on like yeah. and that's why I do love the not me us slogan and I do think that's like but we also need to understand that us I mean I'm a flawed human being who has been a fucking dick to people i've been you know and like i'm a flawed human being too and i'm Same. we're part of that movement 
people right. people and, and are going reason, to be part of that movement. That's the reason why you have to have, and then uh, holler at Johnny um, after I after I make this point because he's been waiting for a couple minutes. Um, like that's kind of the whole thing that I have about like there. If you have a political party, I'm not saying the Democratic Party because I don't think it exists, and I. And I would also have to say, like, I don't think it exists in the DSA or, or really any of the popular um, leftist kind of organizations. Yeah. Is is the party accountability, you know, and, and like that gets talked about, you know, kind of free, like sometimes frequently, like, well, how do we hold these people accountable? Well, number one, you don't run in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party has no accountability structure. Right. So you're not you're not going to get that from the Democratic Party. And and because the Democratic Party is a larger organization, then even if you have candidates from the DSA and they have principles, it's going to be very difficult because there is no recall process. Right. Like for the people that we elect. Like, and that's not a thing. And, and if so there's the a DSA oh, go ahead. Hold them accountable. Yeah. Well, and if if the DSA's attempt to hold them accountable, too, is this withdrawing your endorsement by not doing any sort of investigation or not actually looking at the facts, uh, then even that recall ability is going to be uh, abused and, and sort of counterproductive to your movement, to a wider sort of mass movement too. And I think that's what really kind of freaks me out about this. But yeah, um, we could talk later, Shelley. Thank you for calling in. Mm -hmm. I always, uh, always love to hear your insights. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take the next caller. All right. All right, Johnny, go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, say what you want to say. Hey, bud. Uh, hi. Uh, do, you, uh, do you do this show weekly? or? Yeah, typically or... typically weekly, I think. Yeah. yeah. Is it restorative justice? Can you talk about how to restore proper government? Is that it? Well, no. So this is – the topic for today is about – kind of related to restorative justice. But restorative justice is basically a process. It's an alternative to more punitive um, sort of prison-style justice that's based more on retribution and, uh, and uh, you know, punitive measures. And it's more about, like, how do you solve harm after it happens by creating uh, consciousness and accountability – by all the people who are involved, you know, to what extent can you basically sit down the, the victim and the perpetrators and sit down and, uh, work out a solution together. And I think there's, you you know, there are obviously some, some situations where that's a lot harder to do than others. Uh, but just the degree to which, you know, America's right now we're really obsessed with putting people in prison and making everything you know penalizing everybody and I think that's it's it's kind of bad for multiple reasons and it's not I I'm just not a big fan of like the state having that much power over the lives of of people generally I think mm-hmm. and it's also you know with with the amount of recidivism we have and the amount of people who just come out and they are offended they offend again and the degree to which there's not an aspect of our prisons which is really develop um really about rehabilitating people at all it's all punishment and it's all you know we just right. it's a yeah. revolving door of people going in and out like when yeah. are we actually you know 
how do we actually solve those problems? And I do think restorative justice is a step in the right direction in most cases. Um, I would, I would say that you know when I when I talk on Penguin, you know, in the call-in shows, uh, there's quite a few out there. I always like to 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 how can I put this? My conversations are in the context of neoliberalism. Right? Yeah, uh, and that's the way I see. That I see the world uh, in a neoliberal context. And neoliberalism actually doesn't give a damn about justice. Yeah, right? they're they're all, they're all about power. They're all about privatization. They're all about money. They're all about commodifying all that exists. The market rules and humanity and justice is set aside. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, we're, we're barking up a tree when we try uh, to do, uh, to do you know, restorative justice or holding our elected officials accountable or the yeah. people that, you know, and, and, and to me, you know, electoral politics uh, for, for a decade now, I think it's quite obvious by now that we cannot count on electoral politics to get the job done. You know? Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd, I'd make a little caveat there for there, you know, on more local levels and on smaller sort of races, it does matter. Electoral politics actually do matter. They, they can those positions to where people have more power and less, uh, uh, I guess, I don't want to say competition, but less, I don't want to know if, if it's oversight, but they, you know, like a position like Brandy Brooks was running for. It's not, you know, it's not going to be voting on who goes to war or, yeah. you know, any of that, which are pretty big deals, right? But yeah. it is going to be a position to where she can determine, you know, who's going to have housing, you know, whether or not county funds are going to be used for homeless people. Um, and that's that's important. That actually has a material effect in people's lives. Uh, you know, I, I, I would. I, yeah, go ahead. I would push back on that. Okay. Uh, in the sense that state legislators, you know, local council members and their legislation, the laws that they pass, I, 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 I likened it to uh, a meeting I had uh, that I was part of in, uh, in the union at AT&T. It must have been about over a decade ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're, we're, we're fighting. We're trying to figure out whether or not we're going to go on strike against AT&T, you know, and, uh, and we were noticing, you know, the high cost of uh, health care. And it was then that I realized, and I was studying at the time, what is called the new economic perspective called modern monetary theory which is a little bit more uh, – is uh, a different perspective on how uh, federal finance works. Yeah, right? sure. And, uh, and I'm looking at that, and, I'm, and, and it's hitting me. It's about economics, right? You know, uh, it, it, what, what people, working-class people in America, everybody, I think, left, right, and everybody in between are interested or more – are interested in their economic well-being. You know, do I can I make ends meet at the end of the month? Uh, you know, and you know, can I afford to send my children to college? You know, can I go on vacation or can I, at 24, get out of college and actually buy a house? So, when when I saw that, I saw that. You know, I, I told the membership. I told them. You know, I stood up and said, you know what, our problem isn't uh, fighting for a better contract. We might get it as the council member might pass a law, right, or the state legislature might find a way to 
you know, get housing for that person. But sooner or later, neoliberalism is going to stick its teeth in that state and it's going to extract all the income, you know, and mandate that they spend money or, or cut uh, social programs in order for the state to pay their bills, right? Oh, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't even yeah. – so I'm not even disagreeing with, like, the structural problems of it. Right. But it's going to be, you know, I also cannot deny the fact that if someone gets into that position in a place Mm -hmm. and they actually provide housing for 100,000 people, then that's something Mm -hmm. that actually happened because that they were there, right? So it's it's almost like, um, you know, I liken it a little bit to like uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter or whatever, because do we think that that might have good effects for free speech? Maybe, maybe not. But some people would probably say, well, there's probably going to be more free speech, whatever that is, allowed on Twitter than there is now. Um, yeah. But is that a fucking solution to the actual problem? Like, who inherits it after Elon Musk, right? Who's The fact is the the overwhelming power that one individual has to determine the what's allowed on that platform. And that's you know, I do think with electoralism, you do always run into part of that issue. I mean, generally, generally though, I think there is something to be said about if you have people in those positions who can then at least pass legislation to try to restrict people in the future from coming in, mm-hmm. and then maybe, you know, there's something there. But uh, again... I, yeah. I can't disagree. I can't disagree. Uh, God bless yeah. them. Yeah. God bless the people that are in there fighting. I got a little brother right now that's pretty high up at the Democratic Party in East Texas. You know, he's a chairman for yeah. over seventy-two precincts, and he's working his butt off. You know, and yeah. God, God bless him because he's doing what he can. You know, and we yeah. have this disagreement. You know, I'm at a point now where, you know, it, it, it's it's. It's okay. It, it, God bless them, and we're we're making progress. But can we, you know, for the next twenty years? I mean, it's clear now that there is no left representation, right? The Democratic Party, yeah. neoliberalism has moved to the right. So when they say yeah. the Democratic Party, it's actually the Republican Party. The Republican Party gone far right, and yeah. there's nobody, nobody in the left, no representation. So, yeah. you know, I I'm at a point now where. I'm starting to wonder, and I've uh, considered very hard, you know, what it is actually that'll get us back to where we have a decent society. And the only thing I can come up with is that the only thing that's going to win the day is a display of real, true blue. Yeah, power. you you've talked to this to me about this before, Johnny. The oh, uh, the yeah. red shirt, the red shirt, or everyone wears a colored shirt. And and, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I think uh, yeah. At, at, so we we discussed that. I think I think there's a real there's there's a lot of validity to a mass movement, both display, mm-hmm. um, the theater of it, and then also the actual. Uh, I believe that was also accompanied with having to restrict. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, withhold work for yeah. that day of demonstration too, which I think is yeah. exactly it. Um, what yeah, are your and thoughts I, on that kind of a display of power? Is it possible, Mike? I think it's possible, but it's very difficult. I think one of the things that we have, I do think it's possible. I think, look, I think it's tough because the same sort of desperation and conditions that can lead to a lot of class solidarity are the same things that can lead to fascism. Um, right. 
and that that makes it very it's really which option people be are more vulnerable to to take um and so that's that's the difficulty that that I really see with it is because you're you're right about neoliberalism is is and and capitalism generally it's not going to stop squeezing it's not going to stop exploiting and getting as much blood out of the the humans that they treat as stones as they can but it's it's the, when people are in desperate situations, I mean, they do all kinds of shit. I mean, I, I and and it's it's if someone gives them a clear, I mean, that's that's really the true danger of populism to some extent, right? Is that mm-hmm. there's so much actual sort of truth in it, but all it takes is for someone to come along who can really harness that power, give a really good scapegoat, and then put people. Yep you know, make people kind of associate the wrong problem with the wrong people. And then suddenly you have, you have just out, outright fascism. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You, I do. Yeah, you raise a great point because you raise a great point. There is a danger there. There's no deni- denying that. And the only way I, I can see that we could avoid that is to be clear about our objective, you know? And, uh, but you just pointed out, it's real easy for a person, a smart, clever person to take those three, foundational arguments and turn it right around so no doubt it's yeah. yeah and i think but, i think you know when i'm talking about this article that um this brandy brooks campaign again uh i think part of what scares me about seeing implosions like this happen where it seems that the people involved should have been able to to handle it if they were serious about or if they had a a, a broader view of actually taking power uh but if they can't run a campaign together and they can't get over something like an offhand comment at a Chipotle, uh, I don't see a mass movement. I don't see us being able to build a mass movement that can outflank fascism. I don't see us being able to to bring the kind of solidarity that can actually move us to power beyond uh, people who would just seize on the same kind of angst and and desperation that people have uh-huh. now and use it to their own ends. And I think that's we, difficult. How about if we were to identify, first of all, the uh, the counter-argument that it is fascism, flat-out fascism that we're fighting? In other words, in other words, I can see what you're saying. You know, it could turn into fascism. But what if we make it clear from the get-go, I am not. You know how they use socialism as a dirty word, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, on the other hand, could use neoliberalism and identify it as fascism, as a dirty word. And anybody, anybody that has half a brain could realize, yeah, actually, we are. This is fascism that we're fighting currently. We just haven't the, – the, they've been so well at hiding it that nobody – I mean, ask – Ten people out there in the streets. What do you what do you think neoliberalism is? And and nine of them will say, I don't know what neoliberalism is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you it, think? It's it's. I think. I mean, it's tough because it's tough. I, I I do think I think mm-hmm. like even going out and saying fascism now, like even that word has lost a lot of meaning to people. Yeah. Um, and you know the degree to which neoliberals use that word to describe. Uh, sometimes rightfully, sometimes wrongfully, like the, the, their political opponents yep. is kind of, has already taken a lot of the sting out of it. 
I, I, I think generally, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have any like polls or I'm not a psychologist or anything. I don't know how these messages will resonate with people. But I do think that calling neoliberalism out for what it is um, can almost have the same effect. I think what I think what we really need to be focusing on hard is sort of people with money and power Mm-hmm. And not just people with money and power, but like capitalists with money and power who are exploiting, like how they exploit others, how they exploit yep. all of us. That gives us a rallying point and also makes it di- more difficult for an actual sort of fascist takeover, too, because a lot of fascism is just supported by those money and empowered interests, right? If if you now have a population that will not, uh, you know, they don't give a fuck about anyone who's... Uh, squeezing them and they right. can rightful they can rightly identify the people who are squeezing and exploiting them that makes mm-hmm. it more difficult but that again that takes a little bit of a of an education process it takes a little bit of you know at least people who are out there putting out messages and materials that are going to explain the situation a little bit to the masses it's a little more coded right it's a little more obscured by the the gentle neoliberal breeze that just sways around, you know, it's, yeah, you're already swaying Neo beer, man. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 That's my, that's my, yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm glad, no, but I, 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 that's what I think. Yeah. yeah. But I do like, I mean, look, it's, it's clear we need, I mean, any way you try to slice or dice this, right? Like it's clear that the only way that we fight back against the current establishment all of it is through mass movement, yeah. but mass movement is the problems that I see with it. Not that I'd see any problem with it as a concept. It's just that how do we practically actually build that? Because it can't just be through uh, a restorative justice sort of initiative that happens here in the Brandy Brooks campaign and then fizzles out and becomes these, you know, all of us are Spider-Man pointing at each other, you know, just like, and, and that's always going to be weaponized against us too. Like it's, that's happened for, I mean, with the black Panthers, you had Cointelpro that's putting out, uh, you know, fake black Panther magazines against other black activist groups and depicting black Panthers, killing those other activist group. They, they cause infighting, right? Mm-hmm. They always cause infighting. And so, and infighting is just also going to be a natural part of any kind of mass movement. So, we are always at a disadvantage by having to need everybody to buy in when all they need is just the elites who, guess what? Their interests are all the same as far as to continue exploiting people and continue making their money. Uh, You know, that's all they need to, to maintain their power structure. Whereas we need. We need consciousness, and you know. So, how do you build that? How do you get past yeah. that? I think that's you know. where it's at. But then, that's where it's at, right there. Yeah, that's where it's at. You know, yeah. ask that question, and ask the next person, and ask the next person. We got to come up with something. I think it's some of it, yeah, uh, Johnny. I think some of it is is going to have to be redemption, like allowing people to resolve things through forgiveness redemption and we're moving on for a greater mass movement i i do think that has to be a part of it i think there we're gonna have some pieces of shit who get involved here but if they can reform 
if they can be, if they, if they understand, because a lot of those situations too are systemic. A lot of the things that put them in that position too are systemic issues. Like, listen, you know, when someone is going around, becomes a violent murderer who is from, you know, a, a gang ridden neighborhood who has seen nothing but violence and murder his entire life. And that's just survival and exploitation. You know, like some of the stories you hear about people, it's like, it, you know, it's not like, I I don't think most people are like born evil or anything like that. But yet when, when there's any display of someone being that we, we immediately want to condemn the individual and And not not the things that shape them. Yeah, and not and not their environment and the, yeah, and the, the the era they were they were raised in. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot of that. And there there has to be there have to be pathways to 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 redemption, and I think that that's a wider conversation that we need to have. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm invested in in people. I'm invested in that mass movement, and I believe that it can happen. And I believe that uh, you know, part of it too is just us communicating with each other and allowing people basically having, I know restorative justice didn't really work in this standpoint, but what I'd like to see from Brandy Brooks is a, is still a commitment to that restorative justice, like to that process, to the idea that, you know, even, even though this campaign blew up, like, we can't let that sort of blow up, uh, be an excuse to just blow off all people. You know what I mean? And right. to to uh, yeah. to to make us go into these little, um, you know, to throw up our hands and to give discount. Up. Yeah, give up and discount yeah. people. Like yeah. we're facing so many systemic issues and powers that want us to fight. Like you got to be ready for just a little bit of a slog baby we're just gonna slog through it you know yeah. and and but i you know i hope i hope i've and answered you know what? Like, yeah I, man, you, you recognize that i think we're all all as days go by as the months go by as the years go by we're all starting to recognize why am i fighting you right yeah like, we're all getting it you know look so. look man like, i don't I, I yeah i don't believe in i i even when you want to feel hatred and stuff like that sometimes, man, I don't believe, like, I, I hate the system. I hate the system that oppresses people. I hate the system that makes people behave inhumane towards each other, uh, that teaches us that that's okay and that rewards that. I just, that's, what I, that's where my focus is, is on that's, that's where my hatred is. That's where my, you know, all my anger goes towards is is that it's not towards the individual who is you know in all of this just a part of it yeah just a just a part but yeah man johnny thank you so much for calling yeah, in thank you bud i'm gonna sit, sit down let's show you in here okay, yeah okay you. yeah yeah sounds good thanks for calling all right and now we have a caller we've never had before shelly go ahead and uh yeah, meet yourself hey hi um, nice to meet you. Um, I don't know if you've ever talked to me before. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say Rika's listening. Um, so I hope she calls in. 
And also, um, July is listening, which I recognize July from last week. And I hope I've been trying to like get July to get the confidence to call in and say something. So I hope she, I hope she or he uh, lines uh, up. Okay, so you just you just called to put people on blast and say, hey, well, fucking. <laughs> kind of, kind of. But also, you guys were sort of talking about the whole fascism thing. Yeah. And some of the left failures, and I, and I was. I, I wish that I could, I wish that there was some way that we could have like a six person call or something like that. But because Johnny had brought up like a couple of good comments and I was really wanting to read you um, a quote. I know I'm such a fucking nerd. I'm, I read so many books and I'm such a nerd, but, <laughs> and, and it's kind of yeah. a long one. So just bear with me, but I really want your opinion on it. And also if someone wants to call in and also help get the opinion. Yeah. Or, yeah. Go or, for or, it. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. So, And this book was written in 1932. Um, Where the majority of the working class has followed the line of reformism, um, parentheses, Germany, Italy, etc., in parentheses, there at a certain stage, fascism invariably grows and conquers. What is the character of that stage? That stage arises when the breakdown of the old capitalist institutions and the advance of the working class movement has reached a point at which the working class should advance to the seizure of power, but when the working class is held in by reformist leadership. In that case, owing to the failure of decisive working class leadership to rally all discontented strata, the discredited old regime is able to draw to its support under specious quasi-revolutionary slogans, all the wavering elements, petite bourgeoisie, backward workers, etc., and on the very basis of the crisis and discontent, which should have given allies to the revolution, build up the forces of reaction in the form of fascism. The continued hesitation and retreat of the reformist working class leadership at each point, uh, quote, or, or parentheses, policy of the, quote, lesser evil, end quote, uh, encourages the growth of fascism. On this basis, fascism is able to finally step in and seize the reins, not through its own strength, but through the failure of working class leadership. The collapse of bourgeois democracy is succeeded not by the advance to proletarian democracy, but by the regression to fascist dictatorship. Uh, I think there's some truth to it, but I think it really, like reformists generally, or, or that working class leadership element which keeps the working class sort of in check throughout all of that definitely plays a role in it but to i don't know if i'd assign uh them the majority of the blame you know you first it's it's the capitalists who are squeezing them in the first place right and then it's the the capitalists who are already holding power who are you know creating the conditions for fascism to take effect and then there's also the element of the the same conditions that arise for fascism to take effect are the conditions which arise for us to basically awaken class consciousness, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So maybe there's where you can blame some of the working class sort of reformists who aren't doing that, who aren't like providing the explanation that people need for how they feel and what's going on with them and how they're being exploited. Um but I think there's some right. truth in it. But yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm saying. I, I don't think that the majority of the blame is on it. What it's, what I think that it's trying to say, and then Rika just called in because uh, they got to a place where they could talk. Um, 
uh, but I think what it's more or less saying is it's saying like, well, obviously it is the capitalists that are driving it, but the only, like the people that are sort of on the stage that are sort of, that, that are sort of like the leaders that they're calling sort of the reformist leaders is it that they're, they're not recognizing the threat and, and so they're kind of like the, the second group. And so if we already know how the capitalists are going to react and they're going to come at you with a full force and they'll actually side with fascism to shut the working class down, then there is a, there is a certain amount of like blame, maybe 60, 40 and 60 being to the capitalists and 40 being to the reformists. Yeah. So, I can see that. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's hear from Rika. I, I would yeah. really love to hear what she thinks. Yeah. Okay. And then if, um, you know, Maybe we'll bring you up on stage and stuff. I got a concert to get to later tonight too, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see. I, fa- I really want to hear from Rika since I didn't yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. All right, Shelley, thank you. All right, thanks. All right, Rika, go ahead and unmute yourself, and welcome back to the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. Hey, Bide um, <laughs> and Shelley and uh, other folks who are here. I. I feel bad. I joined in late. I had my whole notification set up and everything. I was set to go, but then I got distracted by cooking dinner. Yeah. Um, just by yeah. eating, which is yeah. completely, you know, like a normal function that human beings need to do. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I, I just have a question. Um, Cause I saw the description. The reason why I was interested in this was because of both the question around like purity of, yeah. of leaders yeah. And also this the notion of restorative justice as a process, which I just caught the tail end of what you were saying, like you really believe in it. So I guess my question is, um my I and I didn't so let me back up. I didn't read his piece, Ryan Grimm's piece, but I did hear him talk about this. I think it was on breaking points. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so you know, my understanding is that basically a process was implemented and then there was agreements around that kind of came forward. And then, then the individual who kind of made the first grievance basically said, actually, I didn't agree to all of this. Um, this right. is I, so, so that's my kind of brief understanding of it. Is that correct? It's pretty correct. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. there, there is, you know, there and again, I don't want to put too much of this on the person who filed the grievance, too, because yeah. I think they they make some they like they do come off like they don't come off as someone who's just super salty or anything like that, right? There's there's some true pain there and everything. I do think that maybe there's some it's gone a little overboard, but I it's you know like. It, yeah, the 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 breaking points piece was pretty good on this on explaining sort of the general tension. Um, right. I do think the article really goes into depth about sort of the relationship they had before the uh, the, yeah. the messages they explained. It's it's legit. It, it makes it seem like it was legitimately sort of just like a slip up moment that was like their relationship had already been real personal professional and and really the main the thing that really fucked it up in my opinion after this is that Brandy should have just gone back to that hybrid relationship that they had before like mm-hmm. Brandy first Brandy Brooks tried to set the boundaries 
after that slip up. Right. That seems like retaliation. And it it, it does seem that, like now yeah. you're punishing me for uh, something that you said to me that made you feel uncomfortable about it. But now I'm being punished about it. Right. So it, if Brandy would have just I, I honestly think that if they would have just been like, yo, my bad. Like, I fucked that up. Let's just we're going back to exactly how it was before this moment. Then there probably wouldn't be an issue here. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think, you know, Sam in this story has some legitimate grievances. But as far as the process, yeah, that Sam did kind of, it seems, rescinded on the restorative justice statement and that process. So it, it almost just negated what had happened from that process, right? Yeah. It's They didn't let it go. And I think that is... It's just so it's just tragic because once things got out too, and then you know it seems like the DC Metro DC DSA just fucking exacerbated this shit by just yeah making a totally unnecessary fucking <laughs> statement, treating it like a big like putting this fucking black ass woman on trial for like of something that a, a common at a Chipotle and treating her like she's fucking Harvey Weinstein. Like, bitch, please get the fuck up out my, like, yeah. seriously, like that, yeah. that's the so, shit that starts to get me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. So, okay. This is good. Okay. So I, 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 so the reason why I wanted to come on and talk about this a little bit was in the work that I've done with union organizing and just organizing I've done in general is that, you know, um, it, there is, a lot of situations where the, cause the work that you do can get really, it's just, it gets really personal and emotional. Right. Yeah. 100%. And, and, and elect, I've never worked on an electoral campaign, but I've been in organizing spaces where, you know, those, those lines of what is just those quote unquote professional boundaries can get crossed um, pretty, pretty easily because of kind of the emotional intensity and the nature of the work. Now, be clear sexual harassment is sexual harassment but i do think that there is something to be said about how sometimes the nature of the work that you engage in can really um affect how you perceive your relationship with your colleagues you know like 100%. It, just, it, it just can and 100 percent. i've also i just it reminded me of also i so i in general i'm a very cancel culture is real but i i'm always listening to the way people talk about it yes you know what i mean like because i i don't i there is often a way in which people talk about it where they use it to describe people who um who are overreacting and that to a circumstance that they're alleging an abuse or harm was done and then are trying to create a mob to make it happen or to, to, to punish that individual. Right. Like right. Right. And I yes. do, I do think that it does exist, but I don't think um, it is the way that we would characterize all instances where people are targeting people with power and also harm that they've done. Right. Like, I think, I think they're, I, I would not characterize some certain things in which we're calling out people who are let's leaders of organizations who have hurt and harm people. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the same thing 
across the board that's being characterized as cancel culture, if that makes sense. Um, I think yeah. I think that there's a way in which we use that. It's like a it's like when um, people often will describe uh, everything as a white supremacy culture, and you're like you're like yeah mm, yeah. yeah that's an analysis that is an analysis <laughs> that's an analysis for sure yeah but it um, almost makes it lose all meaning right in that in the analysis that it has that if everything's white supremacy culture then you know what's what's the difference between right. you so, know anything exactly and so not everything is cancel culture right? right or canceling now at the same time i do think in my experience i have i have um been struggling hardcore hardcore uh with uh and i had some instances in my previous employment with the union i worked for where um younger people were perceiving levels of harm and labeling it as abuse or harassment and violence yeah that really wasn't like it really it really wasn't and it's hard and it's hard to articulate that in the in a discourse where you know full well that people who are often in positions um, or of particular identities or social categories, often their claims of harm and abuse are completely dismissed, ignored, or unheard. It's difficult. It's yes. difficult. Right. Yeah. And so you don't, so you don't want to af- reaffirm that kind of right. pattern. That, and, and that, yes, that pattern of dismissiveness towards uh, even, you know, perceived uh violence and perceived abuse because it has the uh you know the effect of silencing real abuse and real uh you know harm yeah. that people have been under yeah. yes yes it's difficult and, it's and and at the same time i i do think there's a there is and i hate giving credence to it because i just see like someone like bill no, Maher say it but there say it, is girl. A, say there is, it. There is, a, there is a generational Gen Z kind yeah. of thing going on here, yeah. where people perceive, ev- like not everything. That's an overstatement. But there are certain actions that like would be that would occur, and I'd be like, okay, so um, did did they, you know, coerce you into doing anything? Did they lay their hands on you? And it's like, no, 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 no. They just made me feel uncomfortable. And I was like, okay, honey, like I, I, I yes. tell you, like, yes. I don't, should you, should you always be uncomfortable? No. Is it okay to be uncomfortable sometimes? Yes. Is yes. it like, you know what I mean? A so hundred like, fucking percent it is. <laughs> so like, I, that's just normal. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's just yes. life. Yes. And so it's really hard. It's so I, I'll give you an example that's not so egregious as the one I'm I'm currently thinking of, but there is a campaign where I've I've worked on with people where people um were called the incorrect name, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. or, you know, and obviously they're they're a person of color called the incorrect name or their name was mispronounced by someone. The individual corrected them and uh they the person who was a superior in the organization uh, continue to fail to say this individual's name correctly, right? And, um, you know, in, I there are many ways you can approach that situation. And the individual whose name was being mispronounced was saying, you know, that this was a uh, an example of uh, white supremacist violence against her. And 
what what I would say is like I you know I would I I was like okay yeah but what do you so what's your uh, proposal for how do we address this let's just you know take your analysis with it and run with it right and the answer was I think we need diversity training on how to be around people of color in a workplace now as someone who believes me as someone who believes very much in the power of having conversations about these kind of issues i think there is a place for some types of conversations around racism and how it manifests in the world etc i think by and large dei trainings are not that and i think they're horrible horribly yeah horrible. most dni trainings are a bunch of corporate bullshit exactly like, it's just fucking doo-doo like exactly. from what i've seen mm-mm Exactly. And they usually give cover right. for those for people. To, to the people yeah. in those organizations who really now they can say, well, we can't we, we weren't racist or we weren't this. We make all of our employees do D and I training or whatever the fuck. And then you get like two hours of some guy fucking talking about like the psychology of the mind and telling you you need to build more hours, but you know, exactly. in a really fun way. Like a nice fun psychologist way. And he goes mm-hmm. home and probably fucks his wife and has a <laughs> To right. find a great ass time in his big house or whatever the fuck like <laughs> no but this is real this is real and it's funny because yeah. the person that that is doing this is a, is like some rich white guy who has a boat and yeah, like, yeah. that's the thing so I, yeah. I, like it's so no 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 so and so when we i drilled i kind of was working with this person i was like does this really solve the problem does that really mm-hmm. regardless of what your analysis is does this does this really address the problem yeah and it was like so clear that it was a no like no it doesn't you know, like yeah, it does not. And, and I think, I think so what, what's challenging about these situations is, um, is we, I, I think we don't always have to, I think it's hard to appreciate um, what people describe as violence. And there's a, an amazing book. I really encourage a lot of people to to read it. It's by Sarah Shulman. It's called Conflict is Not Abuse. Yes. Yes, yep. Ryan. Did you read it? I did. It's great. Oh, it's so, fucking great. It's, it's so needed. It's yeah. so it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And I'm she just so beautifully describes how the overstatement of harm and abuse yes. can be used against people who are yes actually actual abused. victims yes, too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I think I think, you know, that's one of the things that came to mind when I was reading this Brandy Brooks story too. Mm-hmm. Um and there were other aspects of what happened to Sam. Like the the actual retaliation aspect because mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't supposed to be retaliation, but it had the right. effect of a retaliation. So yeah. I yeah. you yeah. know, Sam's not entirely like wrong out right. of their mind here, yeah, you know, yeah. or, or wrong. Like yeah. the relationship did change. It did have sort of a, uh, you know, effect on their relationship. They, uh, there's not a lot of evidence of whether or not it would, you know, it ruled Sam out from this higher position that they were trying to obtain too with right. the campaign. But, right. um, yeah, that's, that's one of the first things I thought, because when we just look at the actual thing that happened there, uh, sort of something popped out in a conversation, then immediately rescinding it, yep. you know, like that's not, that's just life, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, and I don't want to, 
invalidate how someone else feels because that I think that's the other thing, Rika, that I'm starting to see is I think sometimes the thing that worries me mm-hmm. is that people will start to really feel uh the sort of anxieties and 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 feel deeply that they've been really harmed when they're saying, yeah. "Oh, violence was done against me." Like as someone who's had violence done against him, I understand. Oh, that's not violence. Like that's not violence. Violence. You know, like violence fucking sucks. Like you'll know, right? But they. It's almost like because they understand this as violence, they start to feel like violence is really done against them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes those feelings can be very real too. Yeah. And yeah. that to me, like, you know, when they've been pathologized like that, that is fucking scary. Like, how do you deal with yeah. that? How do you deal with someone who is under attack from, you know, like your existence or something, you know, I, I, I always think of like that Amy Cooper woman and, mm-hmm. you know, Mm-hmm. the bird watching guy and how she's hysterical on the phone that there's a black man here threatening my life. There's part of me that feels like she, even though she's just sitting there actually seeing what's the fuck's going on and knows that's not what's happening. Like that, that sounds real. You know, it doesn't just sound like acting. She's under some kind of, she's having some kind of fucking emotional breakdown here yeah. and has convinced herself that there's actual violence being done against her by a guy who just asked you to put your dog on the leash. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. That's such an interesting case to bring up here. I, you know, and I, I'm not going to pretend to be a psychologist. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm just a lowly union organizer out here. Sometimes I think I might be, but (laughs) (laughs) but I, I think, um, I, I really do think that, um, in these, in those kind of moments, it's, uh, it's really hard for, you know, when you were talking about, too, how we, how do we gauge what's violent when, you know, there is, like, there is psychological warfare that happens. We live in an right. oppressive system. I, you know, there are ways in which we are, I do believe in, like, hegemonic um, discourse and how that influences us, right? Like, that those things are real. They're not, ab- they're not simply abstractions that exist in the ether. They do impact us. We make them real. Right. Um, but I do... I do so I so on one hand I hear you I'm like we we know we can have meaningful conversations to differentiate like degrees of harm or degrees of harm and what that looks like and what violence looks like but but when someone is so convinced and believes that they're so in a in a state of such harm and violence there's there's really nothing you can do but to attempt to de-escalate the situation you right. know what I mean like there's right. really nothing you like when people really believe they are um, under attack like that, absent of like actual physical harm, mm-hmm. like you, you can't, you can only deescalate you, and and choose to disengage, right? Because if you if you dismiss, if you dismiss, oh, right, yeah. you it, mm-hmm. it can it actually can escalate that situation, and it does in many cases escalate. That's how we get people killed. One hundred percent. Like people 100%. get killed from from shit like that. So, I think. Um, I think it's very complex, but I, I will say a note about the restorative justice model. Um, I've, I have never engaged with someone who was quote unquote trained in restorative justice facilitation. However, I, in the community that I lived in in Minneapolis, it was quite, um, quite the thing, quite in vogue. 
Yeah. And I, I believe in it as a model of, or I shouldn't say not believe in it, but I, I do support kind of facilitated outside of um, judicial means to kind of deal with interpersonal conflict. You know, I, I think that's great. I think there's amazing ways in which community things can be created to support and facilitate conversations so we're not punishing people with like civil infractions all the goddamn time, right? And paying fines and stuff 100%. like that. Or putting people in jail, right? Solutions outside the carceral state. But I do, I do believe there, um, there, there are people in communities who are involved with movement work who will often talk about the, you know, um, transformative justice as a, you know, expansion of restorative justice models. And what they'll be referring to is kind of a situation circumstance where someone sits down and to have a conversation, to facilitate a conversation between two people um, about their grievances and what ends up really happening a lot of times is that person or individual will clearly have a bias <laughs> in the, in the mm-hmm. circumstance and mm-hmm. they get, so it, always some people like feel unheard or like one person feels like the solution isn't resolved. Everyone ends up compromising on it and it, and sometimes can exacerbate um, yeah. conflicts yeah, and situations and, and my experience, I was on a campaign where I had like some um, conflicts between staff mediated by someone just to to facilitate that conversation, and it did help. It did help, but in sometimes it brought up other stuff in the conversation, and and this person was just so ill-equipped to actually handle that the the conflict and drama. Now, obviously, I'm talking about this without getting the specifics, blah 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 blah. But I do. I guess I'm just saying. I think the restorative justice model is right a solution that's born out of like just complete failures of the carceral state and punishing people, throwing people in prison, but it is also equally imperfect or not equally, but that um, was de- definitely not equally, but de- certainly imperfect and should not be like the, like we got room to build y'all. <laughs> we got room to build on that. Just saying. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like that's, uh, Rico, you always come with that nuanced fire, that nuanced <laughs> fire so. that we're all we're all just needing needing to hear. You know, it's like yeah, getting them getting between them cracks that get left out on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, you want to know why? By it? it's because I'm not on Twitter. That's why. <laughs> that's why that's that why. you're not sick. That's <laughs> exactly. right. Exactly. <laughs> also, you heard it here, folks. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Rika says, "Fuck you" to all of Gen Z. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I said. That's, that's exactly what, what she said. said. Nope, that's what she said. That's the tweet. Let's go. <laughs> cancel me. Cancel yeah. Me. Please fucking yes. cancel me. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> fucking I'm I'm probably going to get canceled after one of these podcasts. I swear. I'm going to say something and then I don't care. Whatever. Life is uh, life is fleeting anyways. I'm if you've been canceled, maybe whatever. At least you've been uh, Twitter famous for 10 minutes, I guess. Who gives well, a fuck? Well, I will say, I've, I've seen some, um, I mean, I will say that that is one reason why I decided to get off of social media, not because I have any skeletons in my closet that I'm worried about. Um, <laughs> but I, I do, I yeah. do think it's when you see people just being dragged like that in some really horrible ways. And I, yeah. You know, to that end, before before Me Too really got going, there were several organizers 
where I was living who were kind of me to use it as a verb me tooed um, before me too was a thing. And, um, you know, these people who I didn't know, and I do believe I did, I do believe in the people who, who came forward with their stories. And there were uh, many of them who did, uh, but I saw, ended up seeing this individual who was, you know, hired on campaigns, but like, to be clear, this is like years later, you know, they're out and about, they're in the clubs, whatever. Right. And, um, so on some level too, it, we have to understand like, that these the ways in which we go about trying to enact justice sometimes are are so 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 short-sighted sometimes you know like you know think i think a lot of people hope to protect other people when they go about trying to attack people who are like particularly sexually abusing people in the public or in community right like that and sometimes it doesn't really do that. They just, what they end up doing is they end up like closing down an organization because they end up doing whatever, you know, because of the ties that that person has to it. And then the board members will defend that person. And then they're, then the whole organization goes under, right? Because they're defending this, yeah. their, their rape apologist or whatever it is. Right. And, and I think it's okay to, I certainly am 100% supportive of people organizing however they need to, to get their justice. But I do think we have to be honest mm-hmm. in saying that it sometimes the impact goes beyond what they're thinking and isn't even, even the goal of what they're trying to do. Right. Like the yeah. unintended consequences can be pretty, pretty severe. Yeah. They, they absolutely can be. Yeah. <sighs> Damn. Well, that's, that's just a little, little something I want to drop in the, in the college. <laughs> a little fucking fire to drop at the end of the episode. <laughs> Damn, no, I, but that's, um, see, now I, I'm supposed to go to a concert, and now all I'm going to be thinking of is, like, this shit. It's like, fuck, yeah. Oh, no, you got to not think about this shit. <laughs> I know, I'm trying, I'm trying. We'll see what happens, you know. Where, what concert are you going to? Uh, Kikuyo Moyo or something like that? I forget. What are they called? Um... I don't know. I heard them, and they're they're pretty solid, though. It's kind of like wavy, wavy vibes. So um, okay, yeah, Kugaku Moyo with Josh Abrams. So let's see how that goes. Um, All right. Yeah, it should be fun. Should be fun. If it's not, then you know I'll be back on Colin being like I shouldn't have gotten that fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. um, thanks for letting me call in. I'm glad I got to catch a tail in and just drop some drop some stuff. Yeah, I'm bummed. I missed missed most of the juicy tidbits beforehand, but oh, that's okay. The, do the, my best to get on next. Yeah, time. the nice the nice thing about it is all those juicy tidbits will be there later. Recorded the episode is up. Yeah, but yeah, thank you for calling in. I, I always love to have you, Rika. Likewise, so. take care, bye. Yeah, you too. All right, everyone. Well, I think with that kind of wisdom and that kind of nuance and all of that information that you can mull on. I think we're going to end it there tonight. And also because I got to go to a motherfucking concert. <laughs> we're going to end it there for the night. Um, we'll see you next week with a different topic. Uh, who knows what it will be. But, uh, you know, we we'll always love to have you here at the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. Take care.